Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, Lenovo shipped PCs with adware that essentially is a man-in-the-middle attack against HTTPS connections. We'll tell you how this is possible, break down how it works, and the danger that still exists. Plus, the bank heist that just about anybody could have pulled off, the Equation Group, your questions, our answers, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 202 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on February 19th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, Ting, DigitalOcean, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream, why that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You've got to go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hey, Alan, how are you doing up there today? Is it uh, still pretty Good. cold? Yeah, still yeah, cold, yeah. but... Yeah. But yeah. the Tetris light is on, so the show must go on, is, as they say, right? And I'm glad, I'm glad like, that you I don't have to... I think it was more that the, uh, the show couldn't go on until the Tetris light was turned on. I think that's true. Yeah, that's also true. I'm glad that you don't have to commute anywhere for this show because uh, this week is a huge week. It's a lot of big stories going on this week. Uh, and the first one, I, I, when I heard about it, the media, the mainstream media, they did such a bad job of covering this. They, they all laughed, oh, it's the Ocean Elevens of cyber heists, and they just... They played clips of Ocean's Eleven and George Clooney, and they did not cover this story at all. George Clooney robbed casinos, not banks. Alan, this is why I'm so glad we're talking about this on the TechSnap program, because uh, mm -hmm. this is actually a pretty interesting story, and yes. uh, you're going to break it, break it, break it down. Well, the most interesting thing about it is that this doesn't require any certain amount of, of like, Nobody had to be super smart to do this. Yeah. It's all stuff that we've seen many times yeah. and just applied with a little more vigor than usual, I imagine. But yet it gets uh, labeled the greatest heist in century. Well, uh, you know, it's not every day that somebody managed to steal a billion dollars. <laughs> no, that's true. Okay. Now, that number is not confirmed, but uh, Sapirsky has seen evidence proving over... 350 million was stolen, and they suspect that based on how much data they've seen, that it is probably closer to a billion in total. Uh, you know, not all the banks want to talk about it, but yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. an advanced persistent threat attack has been conducted against over 100 different banks in 30 countries, uh, and that's and on average they made out, made out with about 10 million dollars out of each bank hmm. times 100 banks. Uh, so it started back in uh, late 2013, which is a while ago now, but yeah. uh, an ATM in Kiev uh, started just dispensing cash randomly. Yeah. Like the security camera just recording of the machine just all of a sudden starts spitting up money onto the floor. And then somebody walks up, picks up the money, and leaves. Wow. Uh, yeah, cameras show that the pile of money had been uh, swept up by customers who appeared lucky to be there yeah. just at the right moment. Yeah. It's like not likely. Anyway, while investigating, Kaspersky Labs couldn't find any malware on the ATM, but did find a strange VPN connection uh, back to a private network. All right. Uh, later, they were called into the bank's headquarters after the bank's security officer uh, got an alert from their monitoring system about a connection from their domain controller back to China. Hmm. Oh. And they were obviously very suspicious of that. Yeah. So Kaspersky came in and uh, wrote a custom batch script and, and removed the malware from all the machines and ran it a couple times because the machines were reinfecting each other all the time, so oh, they had geez. to go through a couple iterations to get it all, uh, and then they started investigating what was going on. Uh, and then, 
I guess uh, I have a, a video they yeah. posted that kind of talks a little bit about it. Do you want me to let this play, play and we'll see if this uh, kind of yeah. brings us up to date? Okay, yeah, here we go. Recently, details have emerged of an unprecedented cyber robbery that targeted banks, e-payment systems, and other financial institutions worldwide, with the majority of the targets in Russia, the USA, Germany, China, and Ukraine. Behind the robbery is a multinational gang of cyber criminals from Russia, Ukraine, and other parts of Europe, as well as from China. Up to one billion American dollars was stolen in about two years. The crooks grabbed these huge sums of cash by hacking banks, stealing up to $10 million in each raid. Kaspersky Lab and authorities from different countries have combined efforts to uncover the criminal plot. On average, each bank robbery took between two and four months, from infecting the first computer at the hmm. bank's corporate network hmm. to making off with the stolen money. The cyber criminals used Carbonac malware to infect the bank's network giving them access to the employees' computers and letting them see and record everything that happened on the screens of staff who service the cash transfer systems. This way, the fraudsters got to know every last detail of the bank clerk's work. Yeah. That showed them how to mimic the staff to transfer the money and cash out. Clever. This heist was surprising because of these criminals. It made no difference what software the banks were using. Hmm. Yeah, you know, so they I didn't have to exploit certain software at the bank. So basically what they did is uh, they did spear phishing attacks and the like to yeah. send viruses via email to people that work at the bank. Uh, and then they would lure the users into opening those and getting the machine infected. Then the back door was installed on that machine and that allowed them to use the Carburp uh, malicious code uh, to take over the machine. And uh, then once they had control over a compromised machine, the criminals could then use it as an entry point, right? And then they could probe the rest of the bank's internet and infect other PCs and move on and expand across the network, right? Island right. hopping. Right. Uh, and then they could also find out what they used to access the, you know, the critical financial systems. Eventually, they would find a way to get to the machine, the dedicated machines the bank used to actually transfer money. Right? They have you know, special machines for doing wire transfers and so on. Often these are almost an appliance, right? It's mm -hmm. not something, it's, they're not quite the same as the machines that, uh, on the rest of the network, right? They're kind of specific to, for this application. Right. Uh, but then uh, the criminals could study the financial tools, right? Because they had key loggers and uh, screenshot capabilities built into their uh, malware. So they could watch as the bank went about using these various tools and hmm. doing their tran account transfers and wire transfers and stuff that they would normally do. Uh, and then once they saw how that worked and had the passwords for a bunch of different people at the bank that would log in to, to do this stuff, um, you know, they, then they could move on. Hmm. Uh, you know, and so after they sat there watching for a couple of months and figured out how all the, uh, the bank systems worked and how it was interacted and who was who and who to pretend to be, uh, then they could wrap up their scheme, right? They would withdraw funds, uh, you know, finding the most convenient uh, method depending on what bank it was, right? Some of those it was like a wire or a swift transfer to uh, somewhere else or creating fake, ba uh, fake bank accounts and then having mules cash them out. Uh -huh. or I was wondering taking, about that part. Taking a legitimate account and then just editing in the bank's database how much money was in that account. Then withdrawing the excess amount, leaving the account with the amount it was supposed to have. Hmm. So the, the person who um, owns that account, random victim person, doesn't none of their money went missing, so they don't notice anything. Right. right? So they're, they're not calling up to complain. To be, yeah, they're not going to complain. And uh, <laughs> but the bank just dispersed all this money to uh, apparently to this person who wasn't actually right. 
So yeah, on average, it took them two to four months uh, on each bank, and then they just went from bank to bank doing this over and over again. Wow. Uh, which kind of suggests that you know uh, a framework kind of like that Facebook one we talked about the other week might have helped here. If the banks, uh, you know, the first five banks that got hit by this could have warned other banks that maybe the next ninety-five banks wouldn't have been hit as hard. But hmm. you know, when they're outside countries and banks really don't want to admit that they were hacked. You know, and that's why Facebook's uh, platform has these privacy controls where you don't have to say who you are. You just share the intelligence you have. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at the various bits of uh, malware that were used, uh, m- the earliest stuff they, samples they found were from August of 2013. Uh, and then the first time they actually saw money leaving was, I think, February of 2014. Okay. Uh, but, yeah, they used a bunch of different methods. You know, some of them were, you know, make the ATM spit out money. Uh, some of them were make a fake account uh, and then have the mule pick up the money or, you know, use hijack other people's accounts and put money in them and then take that money away or, you know, lots and lots of different stuff. Hmm. Wow. And talk about some, some amazing work. And, and then to turn this around, the Kaspersky Labs over the weekend had their the top guy of their uh, of their American operation visiting every single cable network talking about this. I mean, he was on all of them, all of them in one day. Uh, hustling around talking about this story. It was really big over the weekend in Kaspersky. They jumped on it, Alan, in a way that I think it shows you like these um, cybersecurity firms or whatever you want to call them. They're really, really, really trying to make a name for themselves with this research now. It's it's, it's at a oh, whole yeah. new level of competition. And this, yeah. is, this and, whole report's know, impressive. This, yeah, we've seen the uh, same with like Norse and, and a couple other companies. You know, they're... Uh, and part of it, I think, is because they, uh, you know, in particular, Kaspersky is looking to get more of those the banks that maybe were hit and, and haven't come forward yet to get in touch with Kaspersky and share their information so Kaspersky can can learn more about it. Ah, yeah, and yeah. also Kaspersky is trying to sell their corporate security product that you know was <laughs> the first to be able to detect this malware and so <laughs> on, obviously. <laughs> uh, but you know, um, the, it is good research they did. And I have a link to the uh, PDF they released on Monday uh, with all the details, including you know, uh, stuff they got from the command and control servers and a lot more detail than they were going to put in that YouTube video that was for, or, or what they were going to talk about on, on cable news and so on, right? Yeah. Uh, this is more the, the technical details that just won't work on TV. Yeah, they don't play. Yeah. Uh, but the New York Times has a, a big write-up about it as well. Uh, that one's a little more, you Main- know, has... Mainstream. Yeah, a little more mainstream, whereas uh, ThreatPost and SecureList, which are both owned by Kaspersky, have uh, more technical stuff. Right. And then the PDF has lots of fun stuff. ThreatList is owned by Kaspersky? Uh, ThreatPost is, yes. Oh, uh, ThreatPost. If you, if you go there, you'll see okay. their uh, Kaspersky's logos there as well. Yeah, yeah, okay. Good. Good to know. I didn't realize. Yeah. All right, Alan. Well, I, I know uh, our... Oh, and uh, they just mentioned that this is related to that uh, Tupkin uh, ATM hour we saw where you could just walk up and yeah. type in a code and yeah. say, hey, empty the $50 cassette into my pocket, yeah. please. Yeah, yeah, I'm kidding. Huh. Well, I know that like everybody watching right now, I think if you've been following the news this week, you probably heard about this major story with Lenovo. So we're about to get to that. Uh, so uh, let's thank our first sponsor as we take a moment, and that's Ting. Mm-hmm. Go to techsnap.ting.com. Won't you go visit there, please? That'll give the uh, TechSnap program your support. Tells Ting that you appreciate them keeping your favorite systems network and administration podcast online, but it also, also gets you a $25 credit off your first device. Uh, you get $25 off the device, and if you don't 
if you already have a device, like you don't need that. If you got one, you can bring with you to Ting. They'll give you a twenty-five dollars service credit. Well, that paid for more than my first month of Ting, so that might actually do the same for you. Now I've got three devices on Ting, and I only pay for what I use. It's a flat six dollars for each line, and then it's just my minutes, my messages, and my megabytes. They add them up, and it's not like a bunch of games I have to play. Like I don't have to be in like special share plans to have tethering and hotspot yeah. i just check the box and i have tethering and hotspot it's such a concept i know and it's just i pay for it when i use it and the other nice thing about ting is they've also rolled out gsm the beta is in in progress right now and they're rolling it out wider and widespread you're getting you're seeing all kinds of great devices move over to ting uh, and yours could be one of them so you might even be able to get more devices than before so go to techsnap.ting.com uh, and they have a bunch of great machine uh, device over machines almost is what i was going to call them because like i was looking now like when you get an iphone uh, 6 plus that's basically a full computer or the samsung tab i mean that's a full-fledged computer uh like uh, here's here's an interesting one though check this one out 56 bucks unimax it, 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 uh, you know what if all you need is a basic phone with uh, with Android four plus uh, four point one, yep. this is gonna do it for fifty six bucks. It's uh it's got Android four point one, one point two gigahertz dual core processor. Uh, I think it's got like a five megapixel camera. Eighty bucks, no contract. When you go to techsnap.ting.com, no early termination fee. Android four dot one is not that bad for fifty six yeah. bucks. Now that's on the lower end, right? Of course, like they've got yeah, they'll go all the way up to the iPhone if you want it or the uh, or the HTC uh, M eight. But here's another great example. Uh, the Samsung Galaxy Tab 4 Black. It is uh, the Galaxy Tab 4, essentially, for $223 with, uh, with an LTE chip in there. And you're only paying for the data when you use it. That's a really great device. Yeah. So uh, go to techsnap.ting.com, click on the savings calculator, put your current usage into this, and then calculate the savings. If you're like me, you're going to save more than $2,000 a month. And it just makes a lot of sense. If, if you're like me, you're not going to type the numbers in because it will make you cry because <laughs> you realize how much money you're wasting on a Canadian cell phone company Yeah. when Ting is owned by a Canadian company yeah. but doesn't operate in Canada yeah. because yeah. evil. Yeah, yeah, two cows, two cows. And also one of the other two great things about awesome. Ting, their dashboard is amazing. You can manage your account, all your devices, no problem. And get this, no hold customer service. one 855 and a real person answers the phone. That's pretty cool. You just call them between 8 a.m. or 8 p.m. Allen's East Coast time. That's the fancy time that Allen's in. And then a real human answers the phone. Bob's your uncle, solves your problem. TechSnap.Ting.com. And a big, big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Go check out that savings calculator and see what I've been talking about. Allen. Lenovo this week. Yes. Uh, they apparently uh, were uh, ousted for, at, at a certain point in time, shipping essentially malware or adware on their machine that did that broke HTTPS connections to what? Kind of, yeah. uh, Maybe so theoretically insert ads at some point, I guess, was the purpose? Well, no, it was actually doing this until they shut uh, it down in uh, January-ish. Gotcha. Uh, so Lenovo was shipping their uh, new machines with uh, a program called Superfish, which is a uh, visual discovery I think they have a screenshot of, uh, if, if you look the, for the screenshot on ours of the uh, Google search results, Okay, uh, that's kind of shows what it does. But what it does is it looks at um, okay. what you're searching for and also what the pictures are and tries to find similar pictures. So when it sees a picture on a website, it's like, I'm going to find pictures similar to that and then try to sell you those. Ah. So like if you searched uh, a certain Intel chip or something like that, it would try to sell you a bunch of Wi-Fi access points or something. Hmm. Uh, they have a couple of examples in the various articles I linked. Uh, so basically, um, the visual discovery advertising would inject picture ads and so on into your Google search results, which first of all, you know, that's just not something you should do, right? Like, you know, Google's running their thing and then random people are injecting ads on their site. That's yeah. 
it's just bad. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, that's bad enough and people are going to be upset enough about the fact that their search results might be being viewed by this external company and, you know, all these things. But it's one of the reasons why Google moved to HTTPS, hmm. right? Because there was malware and there were ISPs that were doing this, hijacking your Google search and doing it on their own version or, you know, giving you a less good Google or just a fake search engine that's not even Google uh, and just filled with ads so they could make money. And so Google went to HTTPS so that everything is encrypted and you make sure you're actually talking to the real Google. Yeah. Uh, so in order to snoop on your search terms and be able to modify the Google page, which you can't do when it's over HTTPS, uh, Superfish had to intercept your encrypted communications with Google. And so what it did was when you install the Superfish software, it installs its own Superfish SSL root certificate hmm. into your trusted certificate store, right? So in your... Uh, browser or in your operating system, there's a list of the trusted certificate authorities, right? And right. we've talked about this before, and there's a, a kind of a consortium that deals with this now and picks who gets to go in there and what the requirements are. But the Superfish software would just install its own. Now, that's not a, that atypical of a thing to do. For example, you know, when you uh, set up a Windows Active Directory domain, your domain generates its own uh, SSL certificate authority, and every machine in the domain trusts it. And mm -hmm. that's how the domain controller uh, does stuff. And, you know, a lot of companies will have this for their own stuff. Anyway, so it would install this certificate uh, so you would trust all certificates signed by Superfish. Uh, so then the Superfish was also a proxy running on your machine, and it would basically cause your browser to make every connection out to the web through this proxy. <laughs> so when it saw you trying to go to Google, if you normally did this, it would be encrypted and the proxy wouldn't be able to do anything about it. Uh, but what it would do then is when it saw the connection to Google it would make an SSL connection to Google, but instead of passing you that encrypted connection where it wouldn't be allowed to see, it would then generate its own certificate for Google signed by the Superfish Certificate Authority, and you would make your connection to that. So your browser would see, hey, uh, this is actually Google, and the fact that it is actually Google is certified by Superfish instead of certified by the real certificate authority that signs Google certificates. Mm -hmm. Uh, and your machine would trust Superfish. Now, if you didn't have the spyware installed or didn't have the uh, their SSL root certificate authority, you would have got a big scary warning saying, hey, someone's right. pretending to be Google. Yeah. Um, but because they uh, added their certificate to your trusted list, it was trusted. Uh, and so every site you visited, it would just generate a new certificate for that site signed by the Superfish and let you do it. Hmm. Um, so now your browser trusts the authenticity of this fake certificate uh, so it doesn't issue a warning and you could uh, be completely unaware that Superfish is actually intercepting all of your communications. Um, and there's a couple of security problems with that. Uh, first of all, what does Superfish do if it gets an invalid certificate on the other end? Right? If I have a self-signed certificate on my website and you go to it while you have the Superfish installed, does Superfish then make a real legitimate certificate or uh, a a certificate signed by Superfish that your machine would trust for that actually untrusted certificate? Probably, right? Yes, uh, most likely. And that means that I could then pretend to be PayPal uh, and trick people that have the Superfish installed and Superfish would just hide the fact that my certificate is fake. Oh. Uh, meaning that you could do all kinds of stuff. Uh, but worse, because of the way Superfish works, rather than having uh, when Superfish needs to make a certificate for Google, instead of calling back to the Superfish backend somewhere on, on, in their infrastructure, uh, saying, hey, make me a certificate for Google. Instead, what they did was they shipped the private key 
for the certificate authority with their software. <laughs> so their software could generate these private keys there you uh, go. on the fly. There you go. And they encrypted it so that you wouldn't be able to steal it. And the problem is they didn't encrypt it very well. Uh, and the fact that the password was in the program, right? Because the program needed it to decrypt mm. the mm. private key. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, and so now, uh, because that is leaked out, anybody who has the password for that private key can now generate certificates for, you know, bankofamerica.com or paypal.com or whatever they want, Google, um, and then sign them with that Superfish certificate. And anybody who has Superfish installed trusts that certificate, and now you can do man-in-the-middle attacks on any of those people. Hmm. You know, you can go to the same, you go sit in uh, uh, Starbucks, and everybody who's got a Lenovo with the software installed or any, any other machine that, you know, I'm sure that Superfish sold the software to more than just Lenovo, um, Anybody with Superfish installed uh, is going to trust your fake version of every website. And because, because of the way you have a blanket certificate, right? This isn't just a fake certificate for Google. It's a fake trusted root CA that allows you to pretend to be any website. So you can intercept everything everybody at the coffee shop does. Although if the user doesn't have the Superfish software, they'll get a, a certificate error every time. Whereas people with the Lenovo, uh, with this software installed, will get no error at all. Uh, anyway, a uh, researcher at Errata Security was able to crack the password used to encrypt the private key so that he could make up his own certificates. And he spent a total of three hours doing it. Oh. Although it didn't actually take that long once he actually figured out what to do. And it turns out the password is Commodia in all lowercase. Uh, turns out if you research that, it's the name of a company that makes an SSL interception appliance. So it seems it's likely just uh, when Superfish was building their private certificates, they, they either use the default or just name the certificate after the company they bought the technology from. Mm. Uh, so, you know, that's a seven-letter password, right? <laughs> yeah, the seven-letter all lowercase <laughs> password. Uh, so, the way he managed to break the security for this was, uh, so when you get the Superfish executable that actually runs, it's actually encrypted mm. so that fire scanners don't see what it's doing and such. Uh, and then, so it self-decrypts itself when you run it. So, you know, he talks about in the in his article, which I linked, uh, how you can you know uh, use a debugger and try to put breakpoints in after it decrypts itself and deal with it. But he's like, it's actually sometimes uh, pretty easy. You just use Procdump, which is a, a tool from Microsoft, uh, written by Mark Rusinovich, uh, who used to write all these tools and then went to work for Microsoft and and continues to work on those. Um, and basically, you can dump the way the executable exists in memory. Right, the memory space of the application mm -hmm. uh, what, when it's running. So then he did that, and he got basically the memory space of Superfish. Then he used a, you know, the standard Unix tool, strings. Uh, so what this does is you point it at a binary file, and it looks for any groupings of regular letters. So it allows you to pull text strings out of a binary file. Uh, and using that, he dumped it out to a text file and just viewed it in his text browser, or you know his text file viewer, and he saw the SSL encrypted uh, or the encrypted SSL private key, right? Yeah, I think you're showing that on screen right now. Yep. Um, and then he was like, "Oh, well, I have this private key now, but it's encrypted." So he tried writing a little app to brute force uh, guessing the passwords, but it was going to take way too long. He like even if the password was only five letters, it would have taken a while. Uh, it was partly because his program was single threaded and not very smart, but you know. It was just what he, uh, So then he's like, well, why don't I try a dictionary attack? 
So we grabbed the dictionary from John the Ripper, a, a popular password cracking program, mm-hmm. and tried it, but it was still going to take too long. Uh, so then he's like, well, the program's going to need the password in order to decrypt the key that it's stored in itself. So then he thought, well, why don't I use the strings file I have here as the dictionary? But it was still too many lines. It was going to take a long time. So he used grep to just filter down <laughs> to only look for short strings that were all lowercase, right? And, and trying to filter out the gibberish that was, you know, uh, strings of letters that weren't actually human text. Uh, and he made a short list. And then you can see him, he runs it. And after like eight tries, he comes across the right word in his dictionary, Commodia's, or yeah, Commodia. And oh, wow. look, I've cracked the certificate. Wow. So now anyone can download the Superfish software, extract the certificate and private key, decrypt it with that password, and then sign certificates for any website they want, pretend to be anybody they want, and every uh, machine that has the Superfish software installed will happily accept that certificate as if it was genuine. Holy crap, Alan. So uh, the CEO of Lenovo and Superfish have said that Superfish has, been, uh, has not been active on Lenovo laptops since December. Uh, and Lenovo says, yeah, we found out about the problem and we had... Uh, Superfish uh, issue an update that disabled the software. Hmm. So, doesn't mean that everybody's installed the update, but part of that, Superfish disabled the server side so that they're not going to show the ads ever. The problem is that even if you uninstall the Superfish software, it doesn't actually remove that trusted root certificate. Right. And so you're still vulnerable to the spoofing. Right. Uh, and, you know, and you can get man in the middle attacked every time you go on wireless or anywhere where someone can do this. Um, also, it's unclear why the certificate pinning feature in Google Chrome didn't prevent this from working. Uh, you know, the browsers, when we had the, uh, what was that, DigiNotar and so on mm-hmm, happen, mm-hmm. the browsers started adding blacklists. All right, if you see the certificate, don't trust it. And they realized that that was always going to be responsive, right? They were going to have to do this after every time it happened. And Google decided, well, we know that Google certificates will only ever be issued by this certificate authority. So let's do certificate pinning where we'll, you know, hard code, you know, if you're going to Google and you see a certificate other than this, you're being tricked. Uh, but that didn't catch on to this and we're not sure why. Uh, but given that the same technique is popular in corporate security software, uh, you know, a lot of corporate security software will actually do this whole, you know, it's called certificate patching where you generate a certificate uh, with the name of the website the user is trying to go to and do this for every website so you can intercept their uh, SSL communications mm-hmm. you know, so that you can do things like block Facebook, right? Because if you're connecting to Facebook and it's always over SSL, you can't really tell that they're going to Facebook. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You just see an encrypted connection. Mm-hmm. So if you use this software, you can send a fake certificate for Facebook that you have the password for so you can decrypt all of uh, their communications and then decide, oh, this is Facebook, block it, or you know, this is somebody's transmitting our private uh, corporate data out over the internet. Let's block that because... Mm-hmm. You know, it's obviously somebody's infected us and is exfiltrating corporate data, and we don't want that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's even open source applications that can do this. Uh, RelayD from OpenBSD. Uh, we've talked about it before, how it can do this certificate patching thing. And all you have to do is have every machine at your corporate network, part of your domain controller or whatever, trust the certificate you give to RelayD. And so Superfish was basically doing the same thing, but as software on each client machine instead of doing it, you know, at the network level. Uh, so because of that, it may be that Google had to relax the restrictions on that so that everybody on a corporate network wasn't getting this certificate pinning error when they tried to use Chrome. Hmm. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what happened, uh, but it's kind of suspicious that Google uh, Chrome browser didn't uh, catch on this. Right. 
Yeah, I heard people, I heard Firefox users smugly talking about how Firefox was not affected. And I thought, but that's fine. I think that's that one just pro- because the software didn't target them, right? It's, it's software that comes pre-installed on a Lenovo. It pretty much only targets Internet Explorer. I don't know, you know if they even bother doing that much for Chrome. Well, and it's at the OS level, really. So, I mean, sure, maybe your one program isn't affected, but all of your other yep. software that, uses, that, that goes by what the OS says is affected, and that's a problem. Uh, somebody in the chat room says, uh, Firefox realized the strange certificate. Yes, but that's probably because Firefox provides its own certificate store instead of relying on the operating systems one, and the Superfish software just didn't bother uh, messing with the Firefox certificate store. Right. Uh, all right, very good. Any other thoughts on that, Alan? Uh, no, but I have tons of links if you want to read more about it. Yeah, you do. Lots of good stuff in the show notes for that one, including mm-hmm. uh, uh, including stuff that uh, we didn't even get to, but it's just great write-ups, lots of stuff. Alan, speaking of lots of stuff, how about lots of stuff you could set up over DigitalOcean when you have your own cloud server? DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server. And we have a promo code, SnapOcean. SnapOcean, all lowercase, one word to get you a $10 credit. Now, go over to DigitalOcean and try it out because you'll be impressed about how fast you're going to get started. Uh, Robbie, I mean, I've heard as low as 26 seconds, but you know what? You know what? I'm just going to say a solid 55 seconds or less. And uh, pricing plans are only $5 per month. That'll get you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. And DigitalOcean has data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London. Uh, in fact, I meant to, I should have, I should have probably pulled this up before the show, but if you go over, they just posted, they're setting up another San Francisco uh, data center. Mm-hmm. And uh, they just posted on their Instagram account, which I think is just Instagram.com slash DigitalOcean. Um, and, uh, Alan, you're, you're going to love this. This, they got, they got some clean looking data centers. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, that's something else. <laughs> hello. Hello. Yeah. There you go. And also yeah. you can also check out uh, their Google plus page. I think they posted over on their Google plus page. Yeah. So take a look at, uh, take a look at this here. Uh, look at, at right there. There's a, there's a data center action right there. This is their uh, SFO one data center. And uh, ah. there's there's digital ocean racks right there. Look how super micro boxes. Yeah, look how great those look. And then here's uh here's some more. Uh, this is it's from, actually funny. Uh, one of the places we rent our dedicated servers from actually sends you a video of them like racking the machine or whatever. Really? And then after a month, they they like they show a, a shot of the rack, and then they have this little card stuck on your server, and be like, "This is your server here." Ah, uh, ah, uh, that's adorable. Talking about your server's one month birthday and so on. <laughs> Uh, these ones, uh, these ones go a little bit further back, but here's uh, here's one from their New York, that their, their NYC three data center, and uh, and then here's another shot of it, which is just such. These are such great, awesome, awesome shots. Uh, you can find them on the DigitalOcean Instagram account. Go over to DigitalOcean and check them out. Use our promo code SnapOcean when you check out. You'll get the ten dollar credit, and you're going to be really impressed with that uh, interface where you can manage all of your DigitalOcean droplets. It's so simple and intuitive, and you can replicate the interface on a larger scale with DigitalOcean's straightforward API. And there's a lot of great apps to take advantage of that. Plus, they have a ton of really solid tutorials that'll get you going even further. And one-click applications of things like Ruby on Rails or uh, applications contained inside Docker containers or, or GitLab or uh, Ghost or WordPress, or I mean, the list goes on and on. And on top of that, you can also deploy free BSD droplets. And they have lots of great new tutorials to get the most out of your free BSD installation. Go over to DigitalOcean. Use the promo code SnapOcean. Deploy a Linux rig. Deploy a free BSD rig. Go create your own cloud server with root access and HTML5 console level access. DigitalOcean.com. SnapOcean. Ten dollar credit and a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. You guys, you guys rock. Now, whenever I need a Linux server on demand, boom. 
I go over to DigitalOcean and I do it. They also have hourly pricing. Check out their pricing structure. It's super, super crazy reasonable. And uh, they also, our, uh, uh, the hourly pricing makes it great if you just need to scale for a little while or you got a launch mm-hmm. or something like that. DigitalOcean.com, promo code SNAPOcean. That's also great if you're just experimenting and, you know, you're going to use it for the afternoon and then you can turn it off and turn it on again t- uh, yeah. tomorrow instead of... Yeah, I agree very much so. Very, very much so. So, Alan, uh, this story really blew up earlier this week as, like, the headline was the NSA is installing malware and hard drives. Uh, and then later on we could learn a little more about the equation group and all this stuff. It's like a huge story. Where do we start? Uh I don't know. Good question. <laughs> but, uh, I know, right? <laughs> so, uh, researchers at Kaspersky Labs have uncovered a cyber espionage group that has been operating for at least 15 years and has worked with or supported uh, the attackers behind Stuxnet, Flame, and other highly sophisticated operations. In particular, uh, some of the stuff these guys have been doing went back to like 2001 and basically come out, uh, you know, that they built uh, pieces that were then later used in other malware uh, yeah. that were used as part of the other stuff. Yeah, parts of Flame and Stuxnet, like they're sharing yeah. code infrastructure. Uh, well, I mean, it was more the Stuxnet plugged in their keylogger or something. Mm. Now, this could have just been something that uh, they sell, you know, and that the government bought. So it, it doesn't necessarily mean there's a link, but it does definitely seem like it's related. Um, in particular, uh, the Equation Group used two different zero-day vulnerabilities that were then later used in Stuxnet, but they used them first. Uh, and <laughs> so... You know, that doesn't mean that they weren't just co-discovered, but again, suggests that uh, they sold those zero days uh, to the people that wrote Stuxnet or were related to the people that used Stuxnet. Worked uh, and then and worked down the hall from the people who wrote Stuxnet. Something like that. <laughs> but anyway, uh, beginning back in 2001 and possibly even earlier than that, the Equation Group began conducting highly targeted and complex exploitation and espionage operations against victims in countries all around the world. Uh, their toolkit included components for infection, uh, self-propagating worms that gather data from air-gapped targets, mm. uh, which was kind of a thing for the Natanz plant in the Stuxnet. Yeah. Uh, full-featured uh, boot kit that uh, maintains control of a compromised machine and a validator module that determines whether infected PCs are interesting enough to install the full attack platform on. So when a machine would get, uh, when a, the infection would get spread to a, spread to a machine, the validator would run and decide whether to fully infect that machine or not. Because they didn't, if they infected just every machine they came across, that increased the chance of them being discovered. So they would decide if a machine was interesting enough hmm. before moving on and, and seeing if, uh, uh, you know, only if the machine had the kind of stuff they were looking to steal would they bother infecting it. I also, I don't remember where I read this, but there was like a spot on the system you could type in the word unregistered. And the uh, and the malware would detect that, and it was a way to opt opt out. And you could write it either in in English or Arabic, and you could write it either way. And if the malware saw it, it would not infect that machine. It was like a way for somebody in the target area that knew about the malware to opt out of the infection. Interesting. Uh, they say um, an unusual, if not truly novel, way of bypassing code signing restrictions on modern versions of Windows, uh, which require that all third-party software interfacing with the operating system kernel be digitally signed by mm. a recognized certificate authority. Mm-hmm. To circumvent that restriction, the Equation Group malware exploited a known vulnerability oh. in an already signed <laughs> driver for Clone CD uh, to achieve kernel-level code execution. Well, there you go. So they would just find an existing vulnerability and use that. Uh, also, older versions of Windows, like 2003, didn't have that requirement. Uh, or it had to be turned on specifically and so mm-hmm, on. Mm-hmm. But uh, the trump card of the equation group attackers is the ability to inject an infected machine's hard drive firmware. Uh, this module, known uh, by the cryptic name NLS933W, 
essentially allows the attacker to reprogram an, uh, an H, a hard drives or an SSD's firmware with a custom payload of their own creation. Wow. Now, when it says firmware, I don't know if they mean the firmware or the host protected area. But yeah, there's a, a section on a hard drive that you don't normally use that can contain stuff. And they would basically use that as a, a place to store the virus so that it could survive through be, the drive being reformatted and, uh, you know, it would spread between machines if the hard drive was moved and so on. Uh, one of the equation group's malware platforms, for instance, uh, for instance, rewrote the hard drive firmware on infecting computers, uh, which no one had seen that, that happening before, on 12 categories of different manufacturers, including Western Digital, uh, MaxTorse, uh, Samsung, IBM, Micron, Toshiba, and Seagate. Oh, that's pretty much all of them. <laughs> yeah, uh, and basically, um, the cam control utility on FreeBSD allows you to mess with the host protected area and because that's how you update the firmware. And mm. so, yeah, they would just... Uh, write custom firmware for these different drive models and so on. Hmm. Uh, it probably got harder now than it was back then. Uh, back then, drive firmware was pretty simple and probably not that different between different models of drives, whereas now it's, you know, especially with SSDs, it gets very specific. Uh, one of the equation groups, uh, oh, sorry, I already read that. Uh, there was some other interesting stuff that came out as well, including uh, that they were, uh, that some of the stuff that really uh, pushes towards the connection with the NSA and so on was uh, intercepting CDs in the mail and adding malware to them. Uh, <laughs> although that huh? one, it's like, do you just... Uh, Welcome, you know, you've got malware. Well, you just mail someone a, a CD and make it like look like it's from Microsoft or whatever, and they'll install it, right? Mm. Uh, you know, back in like 2001, that's how you got your service packs for Windows NT. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? Microsoft mailed you a, a, a CD with oh, a yeah. service pack on it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, and that's how you got AOL, too. <laughs> yeah. Not- <laughs> well, yeah, but that's a little different. You, you know, that was, you know, malware. But, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, when you're expecting to get a software update from Microsoft as a CD in the mail, uh, you know, a fairly sophisticated adversary could just, you know, package it up to make it look like the official one from Microsoft. Uh, you know, if you include a, a hologram, everybody's going to believe it's the real one. Man, if you have hard drive level access, though, I mean, how owned do you have that box? Uh, well, pretty much. It just, mostly it just means that formatting the hard drive isn't going to erase the virus. For sure. And we've also seen, you know, uh, BIOS level where they flash the firmware of the BIOS uh, and take over the machine. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've heard stories uh, from people who I won't name about, uh, remember uh, kernel.org being hacked? Yes, I remember. Yeah. Well, the mirror for that sits kind of near mirrors for others. Anyway, um, <laughs> well, the problem they had there is uh, they reformatted the box after uh, the compromise, and uh, it just got reinfected. And so they reformatted it again and didn't connect it to the network. And it still got reinfected. What? And they were like, uh, They're like, hmm. Yeah, that's the NSA. We're going to put that box in the corner and not touch it anymore. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they just got fresh hardware, and we're like, that's uh, all we can do. Yeah, no kidding. Yep. Wow. Uh, all right, Al. Any other thoughts on this this story? Uh, which we might get. This more- one's still developing. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, we've included the links from Ars and uh, Kaspersky and so on, mm-hmm. and you can go and uh, read more if you're interested. Uh, there's seems like a lot of interesting stuff happening in the background there. Yeah, I wonder if this is one of those stories we'll keep getting little bits of more information like we did with Stuxnet for, for months and months and months. We got more bits of information here. Same with Flame, yeah. too. Uh, the chat room asks, would, uh, would full disk encryption uh, protect, uh, protect you against the uh, firmware backdoors? 
No, because the firmware is not on the part of the drive you use, right? The part of the drive that shows up as a block device in your operating system, whether it's Windows or Linux or whatever, is the user part of the drive. The host-protected area and the firmware are separate, and you generally don't address those directly from the operating system, although there are tools to let you do that so you can, say, flash the firmware on mm. the drive when there's an update. Mm -hmm. uh, but full disk encryption won't help you at all in that case. Mm. You know, If they've infected the firmware there, then they can have a keylogger running and steal your password uh, and decrypt your hard drive. <laughs> yeah, very true. And that's another problem. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, why don't uh, we shift gears here and thank IX Systems for sponsoring the TechSnap yes. program. Head over to ixsystems.com slash TechSnap. That puts your flag in the ground and says, I'm supporting the TechSnap program. I want to learn more. You can go over there and check out some of their great hardware powered by those Intel Xeon processors and get a little bit about a sense of what IX Systems is about when you start to engage with them when you want to make a purchase. Or... If you really want to get a sense of what they're about, and you're going to be at Scale this weekend, stop by and say hi. Uh, IX Systems will be at Scale 13 this weekend, uh, along with Noah and uh, some other folks down there. So uh, Noah will, will be doing some Linux Action Show coverage live from the floor, and I'm sure he's going to stop by and say hi to the folks at IX Systems. And you can, too. And if you want to talk to them about the Free NAS Mini or, or the True NAS product line or any of the other services, that'd be a great opportunity to do it ixsystems.com slash techsnap. You can download the ultimate guide to bind a new server for open source. 11 key traits you must absolutely demand from your provider. You grab that, helps grease the wheels. Get away from those service providers that suck, especially the ones when you start to get into like the more open source and like real build-it-your-own solutions that actually yep. solve the problems. That's where your other hardware providers really start to fall apart. Yep. And if you want to really understand the expertise, if actually if you go over to the FreeNAS page under their What's New section, yeah. they posted their uh, four-part guide to FreeNAS hardware design, and they kind of talk about all the, the consideration they put in when they're building a box based on the different uses and so on. Now, this is all information they're giving away to you for you to build your own FreeNAS box. Yeah. Uh, but they have all the details about how they, just, the thought process that goes into when they're picking the hardware for your stuff. Whether you know it's the actual hardware, like looking at how you're going to do the networking, if you're just lagging together some uh, one gigabit NICs or installing 10 gigabit, you know, depending on what your needs are, do you need a, a fancier switch like a, a Juniper EX4200 uh, mm. or is your little D-Link at your house going to be good enough, right? Mm -hmm. It really depends. FreeNAS kind of scales all the way from the tiny uh, stuff you do at your house on your little D-Link 8-port uh, switch yeah. up to the stuff where you're going to want a Cisco or a Juniper switch uh, routing the packets and, and, you know, you might be using... Uh, Using it as a SAN or as an IP, or uh, sorry, using it as a NAS or as an IP SAN with iSCSI or something, and uh, all they talk about, you know, like jumbo frames, spanning tree, VLANs, L3 routing, and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. Uh, and you know, they talk about fiber channel, uh, what to boot off of. You know, if you have a lot of disks in your pool, you really can't. The bootloader is not going to be able to handle a 36 disk pool, so you have to boot off something else, and you know, all that kind of stuff to consider, and then. Uh, they talk about uh, laying out your ZFS pool, your pool performance and caching and how you're going to want to do that, when to use a ZIL, that kind of stuff. Also, looking at the hardware, uh, you know, ECC support, ASNI, all the stuff you might right, want, right. what storage controllers to use, what kind of hard drives to use, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. That's a great tip. And uh, uh, just reading that will give you an idea of the level of expertise you're dealing with. Uh, and that's oh, yes. something true. you're not going to see an article like that come from Dell. <laughs> ixsystems.com slash techsnap and go say hi to him at uh, scale mm -hmm. too and say hi to Noah speaking or, of uh, Noah HBSDCon or yeah well, they're at like all like any, yeah. any Linux uh, yeah. 
show the yeah. IX people will be yeah. there. I love it. They're so confident in their product. They'll, they'll they're BSD people. Uh, I mean, you can run Linux on them. I have, but they're they're mm-hmm. they're you know through and through they're to rock, rock BSD, and they'll just answer the questions and look. Like, well, this is why we do yeah. this, and it's really cool. So I, I, uh, you know, even if you're a Linux shop, if you want a storage device. Probably going to use a free NAS or a true NAS anyway. <laughs> shut up! Shut up! Shut like up. even Windows shops. Stop it. Just stop if you're going to mail this to file server, it's going to be free NAS, right? Uh, so speaking of BSD and speaking of Noah, two things came together. Noah's L2 Arc episode 77 of <laughs> BSD now. That's a great title. Okay, that's uh, a great title. Yeah, Noah's actually, L2 Arc. <laughs> yeah, we're interviewing. Uh, it's an interview with Matt Aaron's and Alex Reese, uh, who both work at Delphix on OpenZFS. And we talk about device removal support that's going to be added this spring. Um, mm. uh, the persistent L2 arc, where uh, when you reboot, you don't have to. Your re- L2 arc is reusable then, meaning that you know it's almost like a, a the prefetching idea yeah. that, that Linux was trying to do with yeah. this boot up. Yeah, uh, and a bunch of other stuff. Huh. Uh, and yes, it's it's not related to Noah from the Linux action. the Linux action show. It's just Noah's arc, but it was L2 arc. <laughs> Because uh, we were talking about the uh, TJ, persistent L2 why. arc feature. Because <laughs> we have a pre- uh, professional pun writer yeah. uh, on BSD now. <laughs> if you notice, every single episode ever has been a yeah. Uh, so pun. there's you go. This about this right here be about your halfway mark in the TextNet program. We can go grab episode seventy-seven, uh, pr- probably in the high definitions. I mean, that way you can you can really see. Alan looks good because he's doing local uh, recordings. And it's just great uh, to get to interview Matt Aaron's because our. Uh, previous attempt to interview him got oh, screwed up. Yeah, uh, the the USB cable on the crappy microphone fell out of it because it was too <laughs> loose. <laughs> out of all the things, I had a Alan. Snowball. Out of all and the it things, was crap. Yeah, the snowball. Yeah, yeah. Now I have the the zoom and it works great, and yeah. we've never had a problem. Yep, the zooms are great. All right. Uh, well, that's the TechSnap's news segment. So you know what that means? It's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website, or even better, starting a thread in our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com like two of you did this week, two of you, including our first one this week. It comes in from C. Meza. It says, I'm new to using ZFS and wondering what would be the best way to set up ZFS on an iSCSI drive or LUN. The SAN is already taking care of my data redundancy for me. My current situation is that I create a pool with a single drive connected via iSCSI. Well, with one ZFS-mounted volume. The drive is filling up, so I expanded the iSCSI drive, but I'm stuck on figuring out how to make it recognize the additional space. I do have the luxury of being able to take some downtime to create a new drive and move data over, if that's a better setup. Thanks, Digital Roots. So, Alan, what do you think? Okay, uh, first one, if you do zpool list minus v, it will show all the devices, and I think all you should have to do is zpool online, uh, the pool name... Or zpool online minus e for expand mm. the pool name and the device name, and it'll expand the device uh, to use up the additional space. Oh, beautiful! In general, we don't recommend that. That's how you set up your ZFS. Uh, ZFS kind of relies on talking to the direct storage, and all of its redundancy features basically don't work if it only has one drive, right? One iSCSI drive is all of its backing. So if the uh, stuff under the iSCSI drive has like bit flipping or something, ZFS can detect the change, the, the incorrect checksum, but it won't be able to fix it because you don't have a second copy of the data it can steal, uh, and borrow from and so on. So ideally what you would do is create like five iSCSI 
drives mm. uh, and RAID Z1 them together or something. Ah, okay. Now, that uh, is going to use up more space because you're going to, you know, uh, you're going to have the redundancy at the SAN and then the redundancy in ZFS. Uh, but the redundancy from the SAN isn't as good, and that's kind of a problem. Uh, so you can do it with just one drive, but you're missing out on half the features of ZFS. Okay. Okay. Um, now, the metadata is already protected by the ditto blocks, and maybe those will be okay, uh, but your actual file data isn't. Now, you can set copies equals two, but then you're, that's basically doubling all your data, whereas if you did the rate Z1 with some number of uh, um, iSCSI drives, then you have that advantage. The other advantage to doing that is you can uh, have your iSCSI client set up so that each of the individual drives is read over a different network card or something. And it makes it much easier to actually saturate, you know, a couple of gigabits. <laughs> yeah, I bet. If you, have, if you have four gigabit NICs, you could say, I, I'm going to have four drives yeah. and RAID Z them together. Yeah. And then uh, that way you're actually going to saturate the network a little better. Whereas a lag, you know, it'll have trouble uh, saturating all the ports because it's just one uh, connection that you're doing, right? So the hashing will always make it go over one NIC. Uh, depends how you're connected at all. But yeah, so zpool online minus E should expand... Uh, the VDEV and use up the additional space. Very good. It doesn't do this automatically on purpose uh, because uh, you can't ever shrink it, so you don't want it to expand automatically as soon as uh, additional space is available because what if you wanted to use that space for something else or something? Um, although I think there's an auto-expand property. I just don't know if it actually works. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, zpool online minus e, pool name, device name, and it should uh, expand the extra space should be available immediately after that. Very good. I love it. Okay, Alan, uh, the bread farmer writes in with our next one. He says, Harry and Alan speak of towers and bread racks, posing as data centers and kicking cables loose. Reminded me of days when I started at NPR, yes, National Public Radio, back in 1992, where there was no raised floor, cables everywhere with catwalks, and made up of milk crates and planks. I'm not even kidding. Over the power and data cables on the floor and the back of the servers, and, of course, over the nosy noisy portable chiller units that you couldn't even speak in the room and hear yourself. I have no pictures to share, but it took a company move across town to finally clean things up. I wish I'd been able to take pictures over the last 30 years of cabling nightmares I have seen and created. Well, maybe I could have made a website of horrors. The shop would have made the top 10. <laughs> I've seen some serious rats nests. Yeah. Uh, I've been responsible for a couple sometimes. Yeah. You know, you're in a hurry and stuff has to be put in, not in the ideal I think order. I have one over there actually right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the worst one is like you watch that video. We showed one from, I think it was Softlayer where they did a time lapse of them installing yes. and everything was all pretty yes. and neat. And it's like, I'd love to do that. But unless you're installing the entire rack in one day, then, you know, stuff kind of grows organically over time and then it just makes a mess. All right, Alan. Jared writes in uh, asking about using uh, FreeBSD under Zen, or maybe as the Zen host. He said, "I've been seeing as Zen host. Yeah, FreeBSD is going to be able to run Zen as a host OS, but I haven't been able to find out when this is slated to happen. Do you know the secrets behind this?" Um, it doesn't have a definite date, but there are people working on it, and the goal is to have it ready for FreeBSD 11, uh, which should come out in about a year. Hmm. Uh, in the meantime, if you go over to the Zen Project's wiki, they have a page with the instructions on how to actually start playing with it today. Okay. Although there are still a number of bugs and a number of features missing that are noted on the wiki there, uh, but you can actually start playing with this today. There you go. Might as well at least start messing around with it. 
Kevin writes in with an interesting one. I'm about to get a new ISP that provides a free VPN with their service. It's a, P- a PPTP VPN. Now, I do have a DDWRT router, and DDWRT supports PPTP and OpenVPN clients, even servers. I've got a home server that should not be behind this VPN. Can I somehow make the server excluded from the PPTP client on the router? Or do I actually need to configure every other device individually? I watch Netflix on my PS3 and would like to get access to the American Netflix since the Swedish one has a much smaller catalog. Oh, no wonder why the ISP just offers this as a service. I don't believe the PS3 supports any VPN configuration itself, which I don't think it does either. Kevin. No, it doesn't. So, yeah, that's kind of the tricky question. It's like, yeah. well, if, if you have the router route everything through the VPN, which you might not actually want to do because uh, the VPN is probably a bit slower than your actual internet connection. Um, but yeah, the down is how do you exclude one device? Because the other way of you know default not to the VPN and then cherry picking what goes to the VPN is it's very hard to do that for the uh, the PS3. Then mm-hmm. um, I don't know that there's a great way to do this. Honestly, um, depending on your setup, you could have two different routers and and kind of pick and choose what goes where. But that's you know not very pretty either. That's what I first thought of. Yeah, is two different routers, and then the the server would use its own router. Yeah, yeah. and because yeah, there's it's not I can't great, think though. of no. Um, if you if the routing machine is is something where you actually have console access only can manipulate the firewall rules, you might be able to mess around with it with the firewall and oh, you know yeah, only certain could. it's DDWRT. connections and targets. Yeah, only certain uh, destinations would actually go through the VPN or something. Uh, like in particular, you could just be like, "Hey, uh, this range of IP addresses change the route to go through the VPN." And so instead of making the VPN your default route, it's just an extra route, and then you statically mm. route only certain destinations through the VPN. Oh. So only if you're connecting to Netflix, go through the VPN. But if you're connecting elsewhere, then don't. Yeah. I think it's hard to do that. Okay, so the next email comes in, and uh, this one I'm just still trying to kind of figure out. Uh, so uh, Cyrix uh, uh, writes in about the I, – I mentioned last week, anybody had information about their Vizio television broadcasting a Wi-Fi access point? After you've got it hooked up, he says, I have the same problem Chris Lass has. He says, I searched for hours when I first got the TV, and then I gave up. However, you started me down the rabbit hole again. I found one leak, uh, link, but it's not very useful. Um <clears throat> He says, I had to change the channel and power settings on my AP because I bought a new TV. And somebody else jumps in here and says, I work for, a, this is a coffee guy jumped in. And I love this. We got like a, we got like a team coverage here. Uh, whoa, whoa, overzoomed. A coffee guy jumps in and says, I work for an electronic store call and I called our Vizio rep. First, he argued that it doesn't, ex- that do- it does not broadcast an AP at all. So then I sent him a screenshot of my phone with it listed. Then he said it was built into the remote but I shouldn't be seeing it because my company doesn't even carry that model. I asked him why they didn't just use Bluetooth or some other radio frequency, and he said RF was too noisy and Bluetooth would just cost too much. He still didn't believe me, though, that the TV was broadcasting the AP and not the remote. I would like to see if someone can make a small Faraday mesh and stick it on the back of the TV. I might be the remote. I could, I could, I could mess around with the remote. I could unplug the TV and mess around with the remote. But it wouldn't make sense for the remote to be... An access point that the TV connects to? Yeah. Could you imagine the battery life? The batteries? We go through batteries on that remote exactly. control. Like it crazy. Would, it definitely make more sense that the TV would have the access point and the remote would connect to it. Yeah. But even then, unless it's keeping the connection up all the time, I guess it has the sleep thing or whatever, but it just seems like... That'd be a big battery waste. Well, also the delay, right? In 
I don't know if you've ever associated to a wireless network, but it doesn't take one millisecond. It takes a right, while. Right. Uh, it's a bunch of back and forth and so on. Yeah. And in such a case, it's like, so my, my remote has to do that every time I press a button if it's been to sleep or something? Yeah. And it's just like, Arr. Now, maybe some Vizio TVs, like there are fancier ones where they've got like full voice communication and stuff. Maybe those ones are uh-huh. Wi-Fi because they're higher bandwidth. But even there, you think yeah, you just I use Bluetooth. But you wouldn't just want to use RF because, yeah. you know, you have to have rich bandwidth in order right. to send Mine doesn't have any fancy recording. features like that, though. Yeah. Mine's just a, just a remote. So yeah. I, I continue to try to figure out. But it out, seems that even they don't know what's going on inside their TVs. No, and I, I, if anybody else has figured out why it's doing it and how to turn it off, because I have a very noisy Wi-Fi network, and my, my TV is just adding to that noise. And so exactly. I figure if anybody can figure it out, it's the TechSnap audience. Uh, if you'd like to get your question read on air, go over to Jupiter Broadcasting, click the contact link, and choose TechSnap from the drop-down. Storage, security, networking, infrastructure, policy even. I mean, we've answered some. Like, uh, I think of this guy named Obama wrote in, and we answered a question he had on policy. I mean, we've got all kinds of answers, you guys. You just write into the show. Also, the subreddit, uh, techsnap.reddit.com. But Alan, with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup of stories that just didn't quite fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some stories to follow up on your own. And a lot of these links came from our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. Thank you, everybody who does that. Our first story is coming right out of France. Uh, that's right. It's not ever, It's not just the NSA that writes the malware. No, no. French intelligence is almost certainly the ones behind this new malware. On Wednesday, researchers will reveal details about a powerful piece of malware known as Babar? How do you think you say that, Alan? Babar, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's Babar. It's um, let's just there's a there's a popular French uh, kids cartoon about a talking elephant or something called Babar. Well, so. apparently it's capable of eavesdropping on Skype, uh, MSN Messenger, Yahoo Messenger, logging keystrokes, uh, monitoring key websites, logger, yeah. a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. Woo-wee! <laughs> Good job, France. Yeah, yep, that's not too surprising. But yeah, you, as we'll, you can see, it's not that hard. If the French can do it, wow, there it is, there it is. Hey, Alan, are you excited about HTTP two? No. No. Oh. No. Well, it's just, it's darn near, I, it's darn near close now, Alan. It's darn near yeah, close now. But I, I agree with uh, Paul Hennekamp that it was a very bad idea and that Speedy is not that good. Uh, well, this is this Speedy or is this something different than Speedy? This is Speedy, basically. Oh. It's a modified version, but oh, it's, okay. it's okay. basically the industry kowtowing to Google. Uh, is that why they, okay. Hmm, interesting. I will read more about that after the show. Thank you, sir. Uh, all right, our next one is a threat post story. Yes, your car wash is on Facebook. Oh, man. Yes. Uh, so, you know, we talked about those uh, gas tank monitors and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, being Well, it turns out that uh, a lot of car washes use a similar thing where uh, there's basically a box with a control and it has Telnet exposed. And if it was, you know, connected to the Internet, then that's Telnet exposed to the Internet. And they have, like, a default username and a password that's five characters and it's all unencrypted and... Uh, in addition to, you know, changing the type of car wash someone orders or something, you could actually disable the safety sensors that keep the doors from slamming on top of people's cars and stuff like that. And so you could actually injure someone by causing the door to slam down on the roof of their car as they're driving through and stuff like that. Alan, um, our next story in the roundup, I know you noted it in uh, this week's BSD Now as well, the end of the uh, Monowall project uh, after 12 years. Yes, uh, so Monoball was uh, a FreeBSD-based firewall uh, that came out 12 years ago and has been uh, worked on ever since. Uh, its main focus was being very, very small. I think it 
fit in like a 16 megabyte image or something like that. Hmm. And a number of projects have forked off of that. Mm -hmm. Actually, FreeNAS originally was a fork of that, and so was PFSense. Mm -hmm. uh, now, both of those expanded, you know, uh, PFSense idea was, well, we want more features, so we're going to make an image that targets, you know, a PC rather than necessarily, you know, a monowall was mostly targeted like tiny embedded boxes. Right. right you actually right, wanted yeah. something that would kind of fit in your existing D-Link yep. or something, yep. as opposed to a PFSense, which is take a regular, you know, tower or a server or some kind and, and configure it. Uh, but the the kind of scripts and stuff that that let you build a custom version of FreeBSD uh, that Monowall came up with are the basis of PFSense, FreeNAS, and um, an, an asterisk-based uh, mm. PBX thing. I forget the name of it now. It's on the website there. Okay. Uh, and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, and so, you know, uh, sad to see it go, but it will kind of live on in the projects that spawned off of it. Yeah, it does very much so, doesn't it? Uh, all right. Well, boy, I'm glad you followed up on this next story. Uh, a little bit more information on the TrueCrypt audit that kind of just went yeah, silent. Uh, yeah, we didn't really hear much about it after the development of, of TrueCrypt stopped. Uh, but now because people have been deciding to fork off the original code uh, and, you know, the money was still there, uh, they managed to get together a group of people from uh, some of the security companies. And in their spare time, they will continue uh, working on the audit uh, in their spare time kind of thing. Good. Uh, trying to stretch out the, the limited budget they have to pay for the audit to try to audit as much of it as they can. Uh, they're not going to audit everything, but they're going to aim at the most popular stuff, the uh, XTS, AES, and, uh, you know, the basic, the most important parts of it. Uh, you know, they've previously concluded the first part of the audit, which looked at, like, the the Windows driver and a couple other things. And they, while they find a bunch of things that weren't great, uh, they didn't find any hidden backdoors or anything. Mm, okay. Uh, this next story I'm still processing, but I put it in the roundup for the audience to read more. A new report published by the Upper House of UK Parliament, the House of Lords, has called for Internet access to be reclassified as a public utility. Further, the report says the UK is falling behind other countries when it comes to both high-speed Internet access and universal Internet access, two factors that could significantly affect the UK's ability to compete in the still rapidly growing international digital economy. A story we'll be following, I'm sure. Yeah, now, you know, I'm all for giving everybody access to the internet, but that doesn't, just giving people access to the internet doesn't really make your economy better, right. necessarily, hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, as Vince Cerf will warn you against the digital dark age. Yeah, uh, specifically what he's talking about is uh, a lot of stuff happens online now and there's no real history of it. You know, we can't, uh, with the older stuff like Usenet and so on, a lot of the stuff we have the mailing list archive right. of exactly how all this discussion happened or whatever. But a lot of the stuff now is either in some kind of walled community where the only people that have the logs of it are like Facebook or there just is no log. And part of that is also, you know, with our current crusade on privacy, maybe people aren't keeping mm. uh, the same amount. Of, they don't want the history to be mm. there. But uh, in particular, he uh, was talking to a group there saying, you know, we have to make sure we're preserving uh, what we need to be able to run uh, old software you know, and be able to do all the things uh, that we do now. And so that, you know, in 10 years, we can look back and see where, how things changed or, you know, even going further forward. Uh, you know, if you've ever tried to run old software on your computer and it didn't work, <laughs> you understand why we need to do something to, so that we can maintain all this history. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, with open source, some of it's pretty easy, right? We have, you know, the Git repo or the SVN, and we have every version of the software as it, as it grew. Um, but, you know, stuff like that tends to randomly disappear. You know, there was a piece of software you used and it 
you know, like Monowall, and then they stopped development on it. And after a couple of years, the source code kind of just disappeared because someone stopped paying a hosting bill or something, right? Mm-hmm. Hmm. And and so on. Uh, so I think it, that'll be an interesting to see going forward years from now how easy it is to like go back and grab something like that. Right. <clears throat> All right. I want to uh, draw attention to a real blowout piece that The Intercept just published today. Uh, by Jeremy Scahill and Josh. Uh, it is uh, a real blow-by-blow on uh, the NSA's program to uh, and the GCHQ. I shouldn't just put it on them. And a bunch of other intelligence agencies' program to hack into the internal computer network of the largest manufacturer of SIM cards in the world, stealing the encryption keys used to protect the privacy of cell phone communications across the globe, according to a top-secret document provided by, to The Intercept, by Edward Snowden, they're still going through the Edward Snowden cache. The company targeted the intelligence agencies. Uh, the, the the one they went after was I think I'm going to get the name Gemtalo, 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 G E M A L T O. It's a multinational firm incorporated in, incorporated in the Netherlands, and they make the SIM cards for the following cell phone companies: AT and T, T Mobile, Verizon, Sprint and some 450 wireless network providers around the world. The company operates in 85 countries and has more than 40 manufacturing facilities. This is who they breached. This is the guys they got, okay? So, yeah, they're able to get pretty much everything. Uh, According to one uh, uh, secret GCHQ slide, the the British intelligence agency penetrated uh, the internal networks, planting malware on several computers, giving the GCHQ secret access. They say, we believe we have their entire network on the slide. Uh, And and they were boasted about it. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, uh, so they have the private keys for all the SIM cards, and they can decrypt the... uh, Yep. And then they... they, See, it seems like... Uh, what we need is a new cell phone encryption system that can take um, uh, advantage of perfect forward secrecy. Yeah. So that if retroactively the GCHQ manages to get the uh, crypto key uh, from your SIM card, they can't decrypt your old phone calls. Because right, a lot of that's how they're doing it now. Is right, yes. they're recording everything. Yes. And then if they decide they need to read what was there, they can then you know get Google to give them the key or or you know, uh, get the cell phone company to give them the key or whatever, and then decrypt it. They also talk about how, just to make sure they had both ends, the spy agencies targeted uh, cellular companies' core networks and also got access to sales staff machines uh, for customer information and network engineers' machines for network maps so they could get the maps of it. Jeez. Uh, And uh, let's see here. The GCHQ also claimed the ability to manipulate the billing servers of cell phone companies to suppress charges in an effort to conceal the spy agency's secret actions against individual phones. (laughs) This is intense stuff. Really big write-up by The Intercept. We'll have it linked in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, Uh, Somebody in the chat room asking, you know, uh, the Snowden documents were released a year and a half ago. Why are we just finding about this now? It's like, well, it was a lot of documents. It takes time to read them all. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And every time you read one, you go off and you have to research it and, and publish a whole story on it. And basically, yeah. uh, there's just so much stuff. It's it's difficult to go through it all. That's very true. Uh, this next story, I got to wonder if it's not maybe not because of a couple of stories we've covered semi-recently here on the show. Mm-hmm. Google is relaxing its strict bug disclosure policies, uh, you know, kind of after a Microsoft's grievance, right? Right. So Microsoft's big pet peeve was after the 90-day window, uh, their patch was coming out two days later and Google went public two days early yeah. because that was the end of the 90 days. Right Now, admittedly, you know, 90 days is kind of enough time usually, uh, but Google says they will relax their rules. Uh, they'll allow up to 14 days after the 90 days if you promise that uh, 
you have you like you have a patch coming out already kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. So like if the ninety days is gonna come up and you're like, we just need like three more days to get this patch out, then yes, you can have it. That's probably a good guy, Google. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, you see, they probably thought, well, we just do sixty days, but we'll make it ninety days so people have enough time, and then they want fourteen more days. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. Uh, you only get those if you're actually communicating with Google and saying, hey, we just need another week to finish testing this or whatever. Hey, you know, I'm kind of a fan of Stripe. And uh, yep. today... I uh, am a huge fan of Stripe. They just took out of beta uh, their uh, Bitcoin payment processing. So now any Stripe processor or anybody that uses Stripe can now accept biz- uh, Bitcoin. That's pretty cool. Yes. Uh, it is, although it seems like Bitcoin's kind of... But, you know, we thought Bitcoin was dead how many times now? Yeah, so. Yeah, who knows, right? Yeah, people just seem to keep working on integrating it more. Uh, oh man, this Netgear flaw is ridiculous. This Netgear flaw in the in these uh, Netgear routers that uh, yep. support like configuring from your smartphone or from your desktop. Yeah, so basically they have this SOAP interface, which is a fancy XML API thing. It's a bad idea. It's a bad idea. And uh, basically, so that you can configure your router instead of having to go to a you know a web interface in your browser, it's like here, download the the Netgear mobile app, yeah. and you can use your phone to control your router. Yeah. Uh, but it turns out that if you try to connect to it right away, it just says no access denied. But if you just fake it enough by like adding a an HTTP header to the post or whatever, uh, it just lets you do whatever without logging in. <laughs> womp womp. They're pushing out a patch. Then uh, the devices in the show notes uh, that I have listed here, the WND series and the WNR series. Yep. Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, all right. How about this one? A Russian man extradited to the U.S. Uh, for a Dow Jones cyber attack. And what's what's the Heartland like the Heartland insurance was, agency? Uh, no, remember Heartland was the payment processor, wasn't it? Okay. Yeah, Heartland okay. Payment Systems. It was the biggest credit card hack of all time. Okay. Remember? Yes. They got, uh, they're an actual credit card processor, so when they hacked them, yep, they got right, right. from all kinds of stores. Yes. And then the Dow Jones hack. Uh, so... The headlines for this one were uh, probably led a couple people astray, specifically, you know, when it claims that uh, a Russian person was extradited to the U.S. Yeah. for hacking. Uh, what happened was the person was visiting the Netherlands, oh. and he was arrested there and extradited to the U.S. Because uh-huh. obviously Russia and the U.S. are not cooperating on anything at the moment. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, so they're uh, trying to make a case against him for these two hacks. All right. Guess what? We got an update on Bad USB. Your buddy, my buddy, our friend, Bad USB. The big, uh, the big news of the summer uh, is back with some new research at Black Hat, uh, where he explained uh, this where it came out. I guess now they're yeah. what? What's we, the we talked about uh, Black uh, Bad USB before when it yeah. came out at Black Hat. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But now, In the summer, uh, uh, researchers are pointing out that that could be used on uh, industrial control systems and SCADA oh. gear as well. Uh, well, sure. Uh, Anything yeah. that's got USB, right? These controllers yeah. on them. Yeah. I guess, I guess, yeah. That, uh, I guess it is probably good to specifically say, "Hey, by the way, these are affected too." Yeah, uh, well, specifically to the people that work on them, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, if you uh, if you've been having problems with your AOL Mail, uh, you're not alone. I guess AOL's been having service issues for a couple of days. Bad news, everybody. You don't have mail, which is uh, too bad because uh, I've got that sound clip right now. <laughs> I've got it ready to go, but you don't got it. Uh, TechCrunch has the article up. According to AOL's Down Detector, the service has been having issues since Monday at 4.10 a.m. East Coast time. And uh, AOL's Twitter handle has been flooded with complaints. Mm-hmm. Boy, I hate to be those guys right now. hate yep. to be those guys. All right, Alan, I think that brings us to the end of this week's episode, doesn't it? Yes. I want to encourage folks to join us live over jblive.tv. 
pretty soon, although not next week, but pretty soon we'll be doing a double recording. That's always great to join us live. If you'd like to be here, come over on Thursdays at 1 a.m. Pacific, which is... 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UCC. Boom, there you go. JBLive.info's got the audio versions. TechSnap also has a subreddit you can participate in and make the show even better. That's TechSnap.reddit.com. And uh, last but not least, we need your emails. Go to JupiterBroadcasting.com, click the contact link, and choose TechSnap from the drop-down. Oh, and also RSS feeds to get the show weekly. Mm-hmm. It's magic. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap. We'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>